Shalom, I'm Yaakov, and you're listening to Line Upon Line, a podcast dedicated to a Messiah essential understanding of the scriptures. This week we're looking at Amos chapter 3, and I'm going to begin by reading through the text of Amos chapter 3 using my translation from the Hebrew text. Amos 3, beginning with verse 1. Listen, hear, comprehend, obey this particular word, essence, substance, this which Yudhevavhe, mercy, the Lord, has spoken upon you, children of Israel, upon the entire family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. Only you I know from all families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your depravity. How can two people walk in unity except if they are in agreement? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion employ his voice from his den except if he has caught something? Will a bird fall into a snare on the ground if there is no bait in it? Will a trap rise up from the earth and seize nothing at all? If a ram's horn is blown in a city, will the people not quake with terror? If an evil, distressful disaster occurs in a city, has Yudhevavhe mercy the Lord not fashioned it? Adonai, Yudhevavhe, the Lord God does not speak a word unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? Adonai, Yudhevavhe, mercy, the Lord God has spoken. Who can stop himself from prophesying? Proclaim on the palaces in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt, and say, Gather on the mountains of Shomron, Samaria, and see the great turmoil within her, and the oppressions in her midst. And they don't know how to fashion what is straight, utters Yudhevavhe, mercy, the Lord. These stores of violence and havoc in their palaces. Therefore, this is what Adonai, Yudhevavhe, the Lord God, says. An adversary will circle the land and take down your might from you and plunder your citadels. This is what Yudhevavhe, mercy, the Lord, says. Like when the shepherd snatches from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so will the children of Israel be snatched away who dwell in Shomron, Samaria, in a corner of a bed, and in Damascus from a couch. Listen, hear, comprehend, obey, and bear witness in the house of Jacob, utters Adonai, Yudhevavhe, mercy, the Lord God, Elohei, the God who goes warring. For in the day that I number Israel's rebellions, I will also number upon the altars of Bethel, and cut off the horns of the altar, and they will fall to the ground, 
and I will slay the harvest house upon the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end. Atas Yudhe mercy, the Lord. Now, as is our custom, let's go through the text line upon line, beginning with Amos 3 verse 1. Listen, hear, comprehend, obey. Et hadavar, this particular word, essence, substance, this which Yudhe mercy, the Lord, has spoken upon you, children of Israel, upon the entire family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, the land of double distress. Let's first take a look at the very first word, Shmu. The opening word is well known among the people of Israel. The central prayer of the faith of the Jewish people, which is found in Devarim or Deuteronomy 6.4, begins Shema Israel. We note that Devarim, the Hebrew name from which we glean Deuteronomy, is actually the plural, the intense plural of davar, word, essence, substance. This word shema means listen, hear, comprehend, obey. The word shema is both a request and a challenge. Listen, but don't just listen, hear. Hear, but don't just hear, obey. Obey, but don't just obey. Walk in obedience. This is a call not only to repentance, but to discipleship. It is the very essence of the good news of our King Messiah. What follows is the phrase, et hadavar, meaning this particular word, substance, essence. The et and the ha, are both determiners, the ha being the definite article in Hebrew and the et emphasizing the definite article. Thus, in one sense, we read the, the word. Put concisely, this is not just any word, but the word. In Greek, we might read logos. The meaning is the same, and it is a reference to the King Messiah Yeshua, as explained by John's Gospel, Yohanan chapter 1 verse 1. The prophet Amos, upon whose tongue God has placed these words, is aware that the word who places the words is present. Amos is asking Israel to receive not only the words, but also the one who both births and inhabits them. God with us, the King Messiah, is manifest in the words of Amos, Imanu, with us, El, God. The next phrase reads this, which Yudhe mercy the Lord, has spoken upon you, Benai Israel. It's a mistake to translate Alechem as against you, plural, a translation employed by a number of English versions of the text. Anyone with a rudimentary understanding of Hebrew knows that this common contraction of al, upon, and lechem, 
to you, plural, means upon you. It does not mean against you. This is why in colloquial Hebrew, when we greet one another at synagogue, we might say, Shalom Alechem, to which the response is, Alechem Shalom. We are saying peace upon you, not peace against you. And we are responding, upon you be peace, and not against you be peace. We notice that like the prophet's name Amos, which means burden, the word he carries is made a burden upon the children of Israel. Amos himself is an Israelite of the tribe of Judah. Thus the prophet identifies with the people. He doesn't see himself as separated from the people in relationship to his ethnic and religious identity. Rather, he is distinct from those who are walking in disobedience to God's instructions. The next phrase reads, Upon the entire family which I brought up from the land of Mitzrayim, Egypt, the land of double distress. This word is clearly indicated as being for all the tribes of Israel, including Yehuda and Binyamin. In the context of Amos, when Israel is used of the northern tribes alone, a distinction is made by the lack of qualifying terms. Here, Israel is qualified as the entire family which I brought from the land of Egypt. Verse 2 reads, Only you I know from all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your depravity. These are the words of a devoted husband who has eyes only for the wife of his youth, spoken to a wife who has nonetheless slept around on him and welcomed his affection only so far as it serves her lust-filled goals. We note that the Hebrew specifies that God's choosing of Israel distinguishes her from all humanity. The phrase ha-adamah reflects the creation of humanity from the adamah, dirt, of the earth. This is an intimate reminder of the fact that God's relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a familial relationship between father and sons. When Jacob went down to Egypt, he was 70 in total, a family numbered according to the symbolism of the fullness of the nations. God is reminding Israel that even before her trial of slavery and bondage, he had set her apart to belong to him. Like a bride preparing for her wedding in this sin-affected world, Israel was proved through her trial and matured in her suffering. Verse 3 reads, How can two people walk in unity except if they are in agreement? This question begins a series of rhetorical questions denoting cause and effect. Ultimately, the rhetorical question that sums up the series would be, How is it possible that you have been clearly warned by God of coming destruction the just response to your sin, and have been directed as to how you might escape it, and yet have chosen to ignore him. This first rhetorical metaphor alludes to God and his chosen people, 
two men who are not walking in unity because they do not agree on the foundational doctrines of morality. This does not teach that believers must agree on everything. Rather, it teaches that unless two agree on the foundational premise for the way they walk, they cannot walk together. The context does not address agreement between Israelites, though that too is important, but agreement between God and Israel. Put simply, if two men arrange to meet at a given point in order to begin a journey, a walk, but one of the men later decides of his own fruition that he thinks he should meet his friend at another time and place entirely, and doesn't inform his friend of the changed plans, the two will neither meet nor begin their journey together. With regard to God and Israel, the two had agreed together at Sinai, Mount Horeb, on the holy standard set by God in order for their right relationship to continue. However, while they began the journey together, at some point Israel decided that she knew better and left the path. By doing so, Israel had put herself in a position equal to that of those who refused to agree to God's moral standard in the first place. Thus, at the time of the prophecy of Amos, Israel was not in agreement with the foundational principle of her relationship with God. Therefore, the question, how can two people walk yachdav in unity except if they are in agreement? To walk in unity with God is to agree with Him that we have fallen short of His moral standard and accept His grace enacted in mercy so that we can once again walk unashamed with our Creator. Verse 4 reads, Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion employ his voice from his den except if he has caught something? In this metaphor, the lion is Hashem, and the prey is Israel. Israel is living in idolatrous comfort, believing that the forest is quiet, but the lion is roaring, and the roaring means he is on the prowl for prey. The right response would be for the prey to cower and seek refuge, Refuge is something that, according to his very nature, God offers perpetually to Israel. However, Israel has numbed herself to the danger, and at this point in her history is perpetually turning away from God, with the exception, of course, of the prophets and the righteous remnant. Verse 5 reads, Will a bird fall into a snare on the ground if there is no bait in it? Will a trap rise up from the earth and seize nothing at all? While this is another rhetorical question intended to convey the idea that all the coming destruction is inevitable, it is nonetheless also an allusion to the self-destructive behavior of Israel. Israel has fallen for the bait of sin and death, the false gods, the sexual depravity, and the injustice of the neighboring nations. The snare, indeed, has been thrown skyward to catch the bird, Israel, 
who has willingly sought out the lure and has become entangled in the fruit of her own sinful choices. We note that two different words for earth are used, ha'aretz, the land, and ha'adama, the soil. The metaphor speaks of the bait of sin being present in the violated creation, thus ha'aretz, the land while also being particularly associated with Haaretz, the land of Israel. Alongside this are the very building blocks of humanity, Ha-Adama, the soil, and the Neshama, life-breath of God, convergent with the soil. These two hold the sin-affected human being to account by way of a just sneer. The trap springs up from the beginning of creation and captures the violator of creation, that person who has refused life and invited sin and death. The redemptive solution is always on offer, the offer of salvation being present before the creation of the worlds. How do we know this? We read it in 1 Peter 1, 19-20, and in the revelation of Yeshua to Yohanan, 13, verse 8. Reading on, verse 6. If a ram's horn is blown in a city, will the people not quake with terror? If an evil, distressful disaster occurs in a city, has yud Vavhe mercy, the Lord, not fashioned it? Once again, it is not a trumpet, but the shofar, the ram's horn, which combines the symbolic meanings of warning and substitutionary sacrifice. The plain meaning, or peshat, being that people in a war-torn area who hear the sound of the ram's horn become terrified, knowing that their city of residence is on the brink of destruction. The next phrase reads, If an evil distress, disaster occurs in a city, has the Lord not fashioned it? Once again, the rhetorical question has an obvious plain meaning. However, some misinterpret it. The foolish notion that God is not in control of evil is silenced here. God is not guilty of evil, nor is he complicit. Rather, he created the possibility of evil in order that love might be manifest through free will. Knowing the end from the beginning, God also sacrificed himself in Messiah before the creation of the worlds, thus providing the solution to the problem of evil before the problem of evil existed. Job 2.10 says this, But he said unto her, that is, Job said to his wife, You speak in the same way the foolish women speak. What are you saying? Should we receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The satanic forces are subject to God. He puts in order all things, both good and evil, for his divine purposes of holiness and redemption. In God, all things exist and have their being. Nothing exists outside of God. Therefore, the forces of evil are reliant on God for their continued existence. If evil comes, 
God has not only allowed it, he has set it in order for the purpose of good. Because evil relies on God, who is good, for its existence, evil is subject to good. Thus, evil cannot overcome good. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. John 1.5 Put simply, the rhetorical question is, do you seriously believe God is not in control of the evil that happens? Consider for a moment the alternative. If evil is not under God's control, who controls it? If Satan controls evil and that control is not subject to God, is Satan outside of God's control? A curse on that lie. The false idea that there is balance between good and evil is a lie seeded by Satan. The reality is this. God is all-existing. Satan is created. The created thing is subject to the creator. Therefore, the battle of good and evil is the battle between a paper maker and a piece of paper. The paper maker finds that the paper has been defiled with vile words, So, he lights a match and the paper is incinerated. The battle between good and evil is like a battle between an ocean of universes and a speck of dust beneath a toenail. Verse 7 For Adonai, the Lord God, does not speak a word unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. This verse qualifies the former verse by explaining that God has both ordered and given warning regarding the destruction or evil that is to come. He has not quietly arranged the destruction of the people in response to their sin. He has instead given them every opportunity to repent. This has always been his modus operandi with regard to Israel and with regard to all humanity. The prophets are emergency workers sent to give news of the approaching disaster and to direct people to shelter, that is, repentance and reconciliation. Fools who disregard the warning of the emergency workers will always reap what they have sown. Psalm 25.14 says this, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Verse 8 reads, A lion has roared, who will not fear? Adonai, the Lord God, has spoken. Who can stop himself from prophesying? The lion, God himself, has roared, fair warning. The prophet Amos is incredulous, the rhetorical question sour on his tongue. By the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, it's as if Amos was saying, I can't help but prophesy this warning to you because of my devotion to God and the realization that I need to repent and rely on God's grace and the manifestation of His mercy. How is it that you, all of you, are not terrified of God? How is it that you, all of you, are not repenting and prophesying warning to others. Verse 9 reads, 
Proclaim on the palaces in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Mitzrayim, Egypt, and say, Gather on the mountains of Shomron, Samaria, and see the great turmoil within her and the oppressions in her midst. Amos, by the Spirit, declares that the coming punishment upon Israel is to be made known to Israel's neighbours. The nations must learn that God shows no partiality. All must know that God is just and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Within the historical context of this message, how were Israel and Yehuda and the surrounding nations to hear the prophetic warning? To make a modern comparison, we would say that the ancient prophets of Israel were the equivalent of self-published writers with a very small immediate audience. They travelled, certainly, but in and of themselves they did not have the reach required to ensure that all for whom the message was intended would receive it. Even when their ministries overlapped, their collective resources could not have hoped to spread the message nationally or internationally. Therefore, there was an element of great trust in the obedience of the prophets, a trust placed in God for the spread of the message. So how did the message of the prophets spread and become popular knowledge as indicated by the prophetic word itself? It spread by word of mouth from one righteous person to the next and was proclaimed not only by fellow prophets but also by common people of righteous faith, people the scripture refers to as a righteous remnant. No prophet could hope to be effective based on his own personal reach. Rather, the spread of the prophetic word relied on the obedience of the faithful remnant community. Some would travel through dangerous lands to convey the message they had received from the Lord via the prophet. Others would share the message with their children, who in turn would pass it on to their friends, and so on. A farmer, a housewife, a stonemason, a builder, a vine tender, a harvester, from the highest echelons of society to the impoverished street person, those who were of the faithful remnant spread the message of warning throughout Israel and Yehuda and Benjamin and also into the neighbouring nations. How can I be certain of this? After all, I didn't live in ancient Israel. My certainty, like the trust of the prophets, is placed in and born of God. God who is just. Justice demands an accurate indictment, the opportunity for the guilty to face their accuser, and a fair trial. This has always been the modus operandi of the King of Justice, Yudhe Mercy, God Himself. The next phrasing reads and say, Gather on the mountains of Shomron, Samaria which means guardians, and see the great turmoil within her and the oppressions in her midst. The plain meaning points to the neighboring nations standing on the high places of Samaria in the territory of the ten northern tribes of Israel in order to witness Israel's punishment. 
This, of course, denotes Israel's exile and the desecration of the shrines of idolatrous worship constructed on the high places. The neighboring nations are called to bear witness to Israel's punishment. They are called to gather on the mountains of Shomron, Samaria. The remes, or hint at a deeper meaning, is that of guardianship. The nations are to gather in the midst of the guardians of Israel and look upon the discipline that the guardians of Israel meet out upon her, the Malachim, angelic guardians, who surround Israel, surround her for her protection, both protection from outside threats and protection from the threats within, the greatest of the threats within being idolatry. Verse 10 reads, And they don't know how to fashion what is straight, utters Adonai the Lord, these storers of violence and havoc, in their palaces. Interestingly, the Targum reads, and they know not how to practice the Torah. The people of Israel have so neglected God's written word at this point in their history that they no longer know how to obey it due to their being devoid of it. Instead, they store up sinful violence and practice injustice within their cities and palaces. Verse 11 reads, Therefore, this is what Adonai, Yudhei the Lord God, says, An adversary will circle the land and take down your might from you and plunder your citadels. This refers to the king of Assyria, who invaded the land of Israel in the days of King Hoshea and conquered Shomron, Samaria, carrying Israel captive. We read about this in 2 Kings 17.6. Verse 12 reads, This is what Yodhei the Lord, says. Like when the shepherd snatches from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so will the children of Israel be snatched away who dwell in Shomron, Samaria, in a corner of a bed and in Damascus from a couch. The plain meaning is that only a small remnant of the northern tribes will survive the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions. Yirmiyahu or Jeremiah affirms this much later in Israel's history. He says, Israel are scattered sheep. The lions have driven away. First the king of Assyria has devoured him. And last this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon has broken his bones. The phrase in Shomwon in the corner of a bed can be understood multiple ways. First, it speaks of the very corner of the tribal land and therefore means that all will be affected from the greatest to the least. Second, it may be a metaphor for cowardice hiding in the corner of the bed. And third, it may also be a metaphor for poverty having only a corner to lie in. The phrase Damascus on a couch refers to the residence of Damascus, the then capital of the kingdom of Aram, being comfortable, sitting on luxurious couches, thinking themselves secure. However, Damascus was taken around the same time that Shomron, Samaria, was. The Targum reads, 
that dwell in Shomron in the strength of power, trusting in Damascus, inferring that the northern tribes had begun to place their trust in the foreign power, Awam. It appears that some Israelites were even living in the city of Damascus. Regardless, both Aram and Israel would be conquered. Verse 13 reads, Listen, hear, comprehend, obey, and bear witness in the house of Yaakov, Atas Adonai, the Lord God, Elohei, the God who goes warring. Once again, the Hebrew Shemu is employed. Listen, but don't just listen, hear. Hear, but don't just hear, obey. Obey, but don't just obey, walk in obedience. The phrase, bear witness in the house of Yaakov, is a declaration to the prophets and the righteous remnant who live within all Israel, inclusive of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. As is the case elsewhere in the Tanakh, what Christians call the Old Testament, two witnesses of a matter are established by the third witness, God himself. The first witness being the neighboring nations, as seen in verse 9, and the second being the prophets and righteous ones within Israel's borders. The next phrase reads, Adonai Yudhe the Lord God, Elohei, the God Hatzvaot, who goes warring. Three titles for God are employed here Adonai, meaning Lord, Master, Yudhe Vavhe, the unpronounceable proper noun which denotes mercy, and Elohei Hatzvaot, meaning God who goes warring. The Hebrew Svaot being an intense plural form of the root Sava, to go forth in war. Thus, God who goes warring. These three names teach us that God is the merciful Lord who goes warring against sin and death. We are not to diminish his character in our own eyes by saying that he is a pacifist, nor that he is devoid of mercy when he disciplines. We accept and hold the mysterious tension of his holiness, and we do so with awe. Verse 14 reads, For in the day that I number Israel's rebellions, I will also number upon the altars of Beit El, Bethel, and cut off the horns of the altar, and they will fall to the ground. The first phrase for Begum, in the day that I number Israel's rebellions, tells us that the coming day of numbering is not a possibility, rather it is a certainty. Thus the text says when and not if. The language of numbering is a measure of accountability and a sort of listing in this case, a listing of sins recorded in the indictment against Israel, specifically the root Pasha, rebellion, is addressed. The idolatrous act of rebellion forming the foundation for all other types of sin. 
The next phrase reads, I will also number upon the altars of Beit El, house of God. Not only does God bring to account the general sins of Israel, he also very specifically numbers the many infractions of idolatrous syncretism, that is, the mixing of heathen worship practices with the worship of the God of Israel. These syncretisms performed at the apostate center of worship in Beit El, Bethel. Bethel became the location of one of the calves Jeroboam fashioned in a vile reenactment of Israel's idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai. God, through the prophet, brings his indictment upon altars, meaning multiple altars set up in worship of multiple deities and in connection with the misuse of God's name. The next phrase reads, And cut off the horns of the altar, and they will fall to the ground. Having mentioned multiple heathen altars, he now speaks of the primary apostate altar of Bethel, that being the rosh, or head, over all other altars. It had been constructed in direct opposition to the singular altar of Mount Sion in Jerusalem. It is likely that the primary altar at Bethel was in fact a replica of the altar in Jerusalem. The phrase, cut off the horns, refers both to the literal cutting off of the horns of the altar where blood was dabbed in provocation of efficacy, and to the removal of the fourfold strength of the heathen altar, a horn at each corner. Throughout the Tanakh, what Christians call the Old Testament, horns are seen to represent strength. Finally, verse 15 reads, And I will slay the harvest house upon the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end. Utters Yotevave, mercy the Lord. The idiom denotes full destruction from seed time to harvest, destruction that continues over a period of at least a year. Additionally, it seems that the king of the northern tribes may have had both a winter and a summer residence, each residence serving him according to the seasonal changes. A modern example might be that of a financially stable resident of Canada's northern regions, wintering in Colorado. In Jewish tradition, it is noted that the king of Moab had a chariot, described in the ancient text as a house made from ivory. And 1 Kings 22.39 tells us that King Ahav built a house of ivory. The Jewish commentator Radach explains, this was the custom of the kings, to make themselves a house for the winter and a house for the summer. And it is also said of Jehoiakim, the king sits in the winter house in the ninth month. And concerning the chariot of the king of Moab, it is written, and the house of the tooth which he built. The tooth is the tooth of the elephant, from which we make certain crafts. Finally, we have this phrase, 
the great houses will come to an end, utters Yodhe mercy, the Lord. This is a reference to the houses of the wealthy and in particular to the many houses of the king of Israel. Thanks for joining me again. I encourage you to share this podcast with friends and family and to subscribe to it on whatever platform you're using. Next week, we're going to take a brief break from the study of the scroll of Amos, Sefer Amos, and we're going to take a look at the festival Purim, which celebrates the story of Esther. As a reminder to those of you who like to do further study, you're able to read my commentary notes on this particular study by going to our Kehila website, www.bethmalek.com and on the home page finding the tab that says Yaakov's commentary. Click on that tab and you'll find that the latest commentary comes up first. If you are listening to these episodes at a later date, then simply scroll through the commentaries to find the one that you're looking for or type into the search box Amos and all the commentaries on Amos will come up. Thanks again for listening. Please join me again next time for Line Upon Line. Shalom Lechem.